good to see you. It's good to be able to look at God's Word. Um, it's particularly good to look at this rather sobering section we just read. But let's pray and ask the Lord to give us some uh, insight into his word. Lord, we thank you that we're able to come to you. You said that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You tell us that your word and the promises there are more to be desired than gold, than much fine gold. It is because of your invitation to look at your word and think about it that we're glad to be in your presence now together. Please help us to understand your word. Change us by it. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Twelve degrees below zero this morning, but what they say is that the temperature will go up to minus five by evening. That's in uh, the upper Midwest, Green Bay. Winter has finally come. Thursday morning, for example, the rescue team at Door County Sheriff's Office received the word that there were fishermen stranded out on the ice. And the way it happened is this. Uh, you know, during the winter in Green Bay, there are hundreds of fishermen that take their fishing shanties out and spend weekends fishing, watching football. It's just the best. Um, well, so as it happened on Thursday, a 10-foot section of water opened up in one place on the bay. And then on another place, and then in another place, and in the third place near um, Hampton Island, uh, fishermen were nearly two miles out into the bay. So, rescue squad came, two helicopters, Coast Guard Cutter, and rescued uh, 65 fishermen. Coast Guard says, in the future, if you're thinking about going out on the ice, um, realize that no ice is entirely safe. Dress according to the water temperature. Wear a life jacket. Carry suitable communication gear. Um, check the weather before heading out. Uh, as things turned out, these people were rescued and it wasn't long before a storm came in. Snow, wind, um, reduced visibility. Tragedies. Events when, um, when there's great suffering and distress are all around us. There could have been a tragedy out on Sturgeon Bay uh, just this past week. Uh, there are physical tragedies, there are also spiritual tragedies. And um, we're going to look at one. Uh, it's critical for every follower of Jesus to hear and to understand and pay attention to a warning that's given in his word. Beware, beware. 
And so we're going to look at the tragedy of misplaced trust. It comes to us right from this passage we just read. The tragedy of misplaced trust. And here's how I hope to do it. I want to look back over the life of Saul just briefly to point out places where there was misplaced trust in him. Uh, so as to give some idea of what's it like when our focus is skewed. And after we've done that, then we want to see how this passage really shows us the temporal and spiritual consequences of misplaced trust. And then finally, we want to ask the question, well, how can we best live in a world that's so filled with misplaced trust? Think about some of the things we know about Saul's life. Back in chapter 15, the Lord said to him, I want you to bring my judgment on the Amalekites and on King Agag. And what did Saul do? In effect, he said to the Lord, I'm going to take this under advisement. Uh, the people have some ideas about how to operate in this setting. I have some ideas. We've decided we're going to do it in two stages. Now, some, the rest, later. And so Samuel comes and he says to Saul, uh, what's with the Lord's command to you? And Saul says, oh, I have obeyed. And then Samuel says to him, so why do I hear the, the voice or the noise or the sound of the sheep and the oxen if you had put them to death as you say you have? In that instance, Saul decided that he could trust his own word as to how best to operate. Uh, now go forward to chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. The Philistines and the Israelites are waging war against one another, and Goliath comes out, and for 40 days he challenges the Israelites to send somebody out to fight against him. Now Saul is head and shoulders above everybody else. He's the king. Do he and his men then charge to the battle? Not at all. They cower in fear until David comes along. And he says, why is this particular man allowed to mock the armies of the living God? I'll go and fight him. Now here's the telltale thing. Saul responds this way. He dismisses David and he says, you can't do this. You don't have any status. You don't have any experience. You're going to be mincemeat in front of him. David says, the Lord has taken care of me when a bear and a lion came to take away the sheep. He'll take care of me in this case. Saul says, well, if you must, here, put on my armor. That will protect you. That will enable you if you have even a fighting chance. And David says, look, I haven't proven these. I haven't tried these. These are not familiar weapons of war. But what's significant is that the Philistines and the Israelites and Saul all see that 
might makes right, the one with the biggest guns wins. And so Saul discourages David from going to fight against Goliath. And, um, well, we can fast forward just a little bit farther in his life. There's one more example. Uh, the Philistines, again, look like they're going to engage Israel in battle. And Saul is afraid, and so he disguises himself, and of all things, he goes to the witch of Endor, seeking help on how the future will play out for him. Who does he ask? Not the Lord. On whom does he depend? Not the Lord. He goes to a witch, of all things. Now, can you see the pattern here of misplaced trust? I think that there are other examples. I think that we could cull out uh, some more of that if we think about his reaction when the women, for example, sing, uh, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And I think there are other examples in his life, but at least these three uh, will suffice for now. So, what happens then? What are the spiritual and physical, temporal consequences of misplaced trust. Well, that's what's in our chapter. And the, the writer goes to some lengths to show us uh, what a sad result comes. Before we look at this chapter, though, let me just say, I hope that you can begin to get a sense that the notion of misplaced trust is as alive and well today in our world as it was back at the days of Saul. There are all kinds of people around us, in the church and outside the church, who think, I know best. I know the best path to take. It doesn't matter what the Lord has to say. There is an old hymn uh, that has these words. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die, that is, man shall die, to dust returning, and his purposes will end. Okay, so what are some of the indicators and some of the consequences of living with Misplaced trust. What are some of the elements? You'll notice right off the bat that this is a relatively short account. It's only 13 verses. In contrast to the long section, for example, back in chapter 17, David and Goliath. And we wonder why. Why such a short rendition of the end of Saul's life? Might it be so that we read it, it's packed with detail, so that we read it and then ponder. Well, it's pretty easy to break down this chapter into its sections. Uh, verses 1 to 3, the Philistine victory over Israel. Then verses 4 through 6, Saul's death. Then the Philistine victory in the next verses, 6 through 10, um, uh, the Philistine victory stage 2, if you will. 
And then finally, verses 11 to 13, uh, the response of the men of Jabesh, Gilead. But notice, please, the number of um, verbs that are used to convey brutality. Now this is on the way to underscoring the consequences of misplaced trust. Flee. Three times. Fall or fallen. Strike down. Writhe. Wounded. Pierce through. Die. Strip. Cut off. Nail. Uh, suppose we were making a movie of this. We'd see the We'd see the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel from a distance. And uh, we might be able to see from the distance that uh, the Philistines are moving ahead and the armies of Israel are fleeing. And then we get to verse 2 and Saul's sons are cornered. The enemy has chariots, but... They're effective down in a plain. The Israelites are up on Mount Gilboa. It makes it harder for them, except for the fact that the Philistines also have archers. And they close in on the sons of Saul and on Saul himself. If Saul was afraid when he went to the witch of Endor, he must have been terrified at this point. He is badly wounded, and we're told in verse 4 that he cries out to his armor-bearer, end my life, pierce me through. If you remember, just by way of contrast, uh, David had been Saul's armor-bearer. And on two occasions, when he had the opportunity, he refused to do any harm because he viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed. Well, this armor-bearer won't either, and so Saul runs himself through on his own sword. While suicide is an individual choice, it's never about just one person. And we see that so clearly here. What happens? Saul takes his own life, and then his armor-bearer, seeing that Saul is dead, he takes his life as well. And verse 6 kind of provides an apt summary to all that's here, all this tragedy. So Saul, his three sons, the armor-bearer, and all his men die on the same day. What an awful picture. Who would have imagined and then verse 7 tells us that in addition, the Israelites flee their towns and the Philistines come to inhabit them. Just destruction, wherever you look. Suffering, tragedy, with a capital T. Well, verses 8 and following tell us what happens the next day. The Philistines return and is, has been the normal practice in fighting. Uh, they strip the bodies of those who have died and to their uh, glad surprise, here is Saul's body. And so they cut off his head, 
Remember, Goliath had been decapitated. They cut off his head and they strip him of his army and they send messengers proclaiming their good news that day, their victory. And they want people in their houses of worship to know that Ashtaroth and Dagon are the real true gods and the God of Israel, Yahweh, he is not to be worshipped. And then they take Saul's armor, they place it in their temple, and in dignity of indignities, having stripped him of his armor, they then hang his body on a wall. Public display. What a picture. Now, let's summarize Saul's tragic end um, in this way. He has certainly reaped what he sowed. He reaps physically what he has sown spiritually. He didn't get to this place of self-trust and having to live with the results of self-trust um, in one fell swoop. Little by little by little, he moves away from the Lord. And this is nothing less than a gory picture of defeat, of suffering, of loss, and of public mocking. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead don't forget. They don't forget how Saul had really intervened on their behalf. And so, at personal risk, they come, they take his body, they bring it back burn the body, bury the bones, and they bury his bones under a tamarisk tree. You remember the last time we heard about a tamarisk tree? It's back in chapter 22, I think. Uh, we have this picture of Saul on a hill under a tamarisk tree with his spear. And he is just on the verge of telling Doeg to go and kill the 85 priests at Nob. Now, he's in the grave. And the tree marks the spot, the wages of sin, those wages are death. Death certainly reigned that day. It was a good day to be a Philistine. And how did we get to this place? We see it in the larger picture frame. The Lord had given Israel a king of her choosing. She said, we don't want to be like, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king that can go out and fight for us. When the Lord wanted to be Israel's king. And so Israel first chooses, uh, demands that human power is the way they're going to go. We're going to trust in human power. And Saul foolishly trusts in his own resources, in human power, rather than listening in obedience to the voice of God. And the narrator pans this awful scene, to re and, it, and in so doing, he reminds us of another one who was seemingly defeated by his enemies. This other one, he was handed over, and as Saul was afraid that he would be abused, 
this other one was abused. And his body was hung out in public display, the object of horror and disgust. And then some who cared deeply for him at some personal risk came, took his body, and gave it an honorable burial. Any similarities between King Saul in his death and King Jesus in his death also highlight their differences. Saul dies this tragic death because of misplaced trust. Jesus, on the other hand, dies in obedience to his father for the sake of those who will trust in him. One king's death makes us very sad. The other king's death makes us very glad. Now, let's remember the context here from a slightly different angle. Saul's death comes to us as a warning, and it would certainly have come to the first readers of 1 Samuel as a warning. Don't, don't trust in your own resources. Because as we can see in the life of big, promising King Saul, if you trust in your resources, it ends tragically. Or, let's think about this narrative from one other perspective. Jesus is God's faithful king who is also his righteous judge. And as Saul now falls before the Philistines, so the Bible tells us that before Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God for, for the glory of God the Father. That Jesus is Lord for the glory of God the Father. And then there's one other angle, at least, from which to view this tragedy. God shows us not to live out of our own resources. And on the other hand, there is an implied, gracious invitation. You have the person and the power of the Holy Spirit right now operating in you. And for that reason, Christ is inviting you, He's encouraging you to live in a world that is not marked by your own sense of self-sufficiency, but rather in a world that is marked by moment-by-moment moment dependence on Him. In other words, seeing pointers to Christ in this passage is not the end. It's the beginning because the Lord intends those pointers to move us not only to see Christ and savor Christ, but also to be like Christ, to behave like Him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
God's intent is to conform you to the image of his son. So the Bible directs us to move from seeing Christ to being like Christ to behaving like Christ. And so then we ask the question, well, what, what form might that take? How might I take this uh, account of the tragedy of misplaced trust and have that make some kind of difference in a world that's filled with misplaced trust? I think a first place to start is to raise the question, well, to what extent do you trust in your own ingenuity? What are the things in which you're trusting? And where do those trust points turn you away from the Lord? Because he wants to be the focus point of your trust. That'd be a, a starting point. But I think there's another surprisingly, uh, perhaps strange even, uh, point of application. I think we can take something out of the Philistine playbook. Do you remember what happens with the Philistines here? After they have defeated Saul? Well, it says. Where is it? Um, verse 9. They cut off his head, strip off his armor, send messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. It's an interesting word, um, good news. It's a Hebrew word that's translated by ancient um, Greek writers as the very same word that's used in the New Testament when we talk about the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke or the go it's good news. But this good news that we find in the New Testament announces not only that Jesus has died, but that he's been raised to new life and he's now at the Father's right hand and he is sovereign over all things and is leading his people to glorify his name. And it's also the very word that's used uh, to encourage us to be a blessing to our neighbors. We're charged with sharing this good news of the resurrected king. And so this passage, first of all, punctuates the tragedy of relying on your own resources. And then by implication, it encourages us to consider the larger picture of what God has done and is doing through the work of Christ and by implication invites us to be part of that. And then by extension, it challenges you to share these very truths with those with whom you rub shoulders. Or as Paul puts it when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, let me encourage you to think about those people in your life 
you would most like to see come to faith? Who are the people that most need the Lord in your orbit? And this week, pray for them. Lord, would you please work and draw my dear friends, family members, someone with whom I work, would you please draw this person to yourself? And then, would you also take the next step and ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to pass on the news, Jesus is alive, he invites you to share his resurrection life uh, to that person that the Lord brings to your mind. After all, isn't good news for sharing? Lord, we thank you for giving us this passage that is so, such a sad one, but reminds us to be glad in the Lord because of who Jesus is on our behalf. Help us, we pray, to pass on the good news more and more faithfully. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.